You've just awakened this morning. You get up and rub your eyes and scratch your stomach. Lazily, you get out of bed. You walk to the front door, open it, and get the morning newspaper. Once you are awake enough to read the paper, your eyes catch an article with this caption. Will anyone go from New York to Paris by automobile? By automobile? Yes, by automobile. To the breakfast reader, the idea probably seems ridiculous and impractical. But as ridiculous and impractical as this seems, that is what this excursion in history will deal with. This excursion in history will take you on the great around-the-world automobile race of 1908 from New York to Paris. Two newspapers, Le Martin of France and the New York Times of the United States, have agreed to pay $1,000 to the winner of the race. Now the question comes, is there any person crazy enough to do such a thing? This is adventure, and where adventure exists, there are men to pursue it. Men will not only pursue the adventure for the money, but they will also pursue the adventure for the glory. So the ground rules for the race were worked out. The regulations were that the cars must adhere to the route laid down by the organizers of the race. Furthermore, all competitors were to send telegrams regularly back to the newspapers so the newspapers could keep a check on them and print the news. Once the rules had been worked out, the route was next. The cars would start from New York and head northwest up the Hudson Valley. Once they passed Albany, New York, they would move on toward the Great Lakes. Once through Buffalo, New York, they would move on to Cleveland, then on to Chicago, Illinois. From there, they would go to Ogden, Utah. Next, they would head southwest toward Los Angeles. From Los Angeles, they would go to San Francisco. Finally, they would push on to Seattle. Then where? Well, the way it was laid out was almost pure fantasy. From Seattle, they would drive to Skagway, Alaska, traveling overland. But you might say, there were no roads there in 1908. There weren't any roads built to Alaska until the 1940s, during the Second World War. Be that as it may, that is the way they would have to go. They would have to find the best way they could, and that was that. If they were chicken, they didn't have to enter the race. Now, where were we? Oh yes, Skagway. From there, they would go to Dawson City, and then they would follow the Yukon River toward Fairbanks, and then on to Nome, to the shores of the Bering Sea. By the time they arrived at Nome, the cars could cross the narrowest point of land between North America and Asia on the ice, which should be covering the Bering Straits at that time of year. Once on the Siberian side, they would follow the northeastern tundra to Nizhny Kolomensk and Verkhoyansk, then to Lina and Yakutsk, from Irkutsk to St. Petersburg, from St. Petersburg to Paris, a total of 17,000 miles.
All of this was theory, which was unsupported by the slightest investigation as to whether it could be done or not. Then, too, there was the problem of gasoline. There were no service stations in the Russian territory when these men traveled there. The gasoline problem was handled by the Russian Nobel Company, which agreed to have gasoline waiting for the cars at certain spots. The gasoline depots would be many miles apart, so the drivers had better take with them extra cans for gasoline, just in case they ran a little short. And that isn't all they had better take. What about tires, tubes, spare parts, and tools? All of these things they had to take for themselves. Despite the overwhelming odds of ever completing such a trip, a courageous few did enter the race. The American entry was a car called the Thomas Flyer, put out by the Thomas Car Company. Representing England was a car called the Motorblock. The Zeus came from Italy, and there was the Dedian from France and the Protos from Germany. On the fine but freezing morning of February twelfth, nineteen o eight, at about eleven a.m., a quarter of a million people jammed Times Square to watch the beginning of the New York to Paris automobile race. As was scheduled, the drivers first headed north toward Albany, New York. Here, the temperatures zoomed below zero, and here, two of the entries lost their engines because their blocks cracked in the extreme cold. The others, who had alcohol, put it in their radiators and were able to keep going. As the race continued, new problems arose. Snowstorms, with snow continually falling, the groups driving each car would huddle close together to stay warm. George Schuster, the driver of the Thomas Flyer, waited ahead of his car to make sure that the road was there, because in the snow he couldn't tell where the roads were. Remember, this race took place in the days before snow removal equipment. Kept the highways clean. Snowdrift after snowdrift was in their way. Many of the snowdrifts had hard crusts on them, hard enough to sustain the weight of a man, but not hard enough to sustain the weight of an automobile. So the men in each car had to shovel their way through these drifts. The individuals who survived the race later recall that during the early part of the race. They spent more time shoveling snow than they did driving. In Rochester, New York, the Italian car, the Zeus, broke down. It was on a Sunday, and no workers could be found anywhere to help the Italians. Then, when the news spread to the Italian-American section of the city, Italian workers came in hordes. With frenzied enthusiasm, they made what repairs they could. Little by little, the cars inched westward. The American car, the Thomas Flyer, took a commanding lead and soon left the other cars far behind. 
Between driving spells, the crews rested in the back of the bouncing, jolting cars as best they could. Eating and sleeping not only became a prime objective, it also became a great accomplishment. The temperatures dropped so low that the crew members took their frozen sandwiches and broke them with their hammers. Then they washed down the frozen chunks of food with a belt of whiskey. The other major chore was keeping warm. You must remember that these cars of the early 1900s were open cars. They did not have enclosed roofs like our automobiles today do. The members of each crew bundled up warm. They drove through the cold, biting wind, and it was like glass cutting into their faces. To keep their feet from freezing, the floorboards were taken up, and the crew members would take turns placing their feet on the hot, glowing exhaust pipe. Now and then, the crews would have a hot meal while they were on the road. They would break some corned beef with their trusty hammers. Then they would smash some eggs, which were almost frozen solid, and place the ingredients in a cup. The items in the cup were then placed over the steaming radiator to thaw. When the mixture in the cup had thawed and was warm, the contents was swallowed as fast as it could be. Well, at least it was warm. By the time the group approached the prairie country of the United States, it was early March and the spring thaw was starting. Without hardtop or cement roads in that day and age, you can see what is coming, mud, and lots of it. The Italian car was now in second place, and the crew took turns driving, trying to overtake the Thomas Flyer. In the small hours of one morning, the Italian crew, tired to death and aching all over, all of a sudden felt their car lurch, it leaned over at a drunken angle. The car had slipped into some deep mud. The mud now began to suck the car down at the wheels. The crew threw a line to a tree, and then using the principles of leverage, they hauled it out with blocks and chains. Now dead tired, they built a fire around which to huddle to keep warm. As they sat there enjoying the warmth of the fire, one of the men jumped to his feet and gasped as he pointed at the car. His companions looked up just in time to see the car being swallowed up by mud. The rims had sunk out of sight and the spokes were fast disappearing. Bits of wood were jammed under the wheels feverishly, but nothing happened. The car just kept going down. They lashed chains to trees and that held it until they could find a farmer that would finally pull them free the next day. The Thomas Flyer was now two days ahead of the second place Italian car. The Italians were following the tracks laid down by the Thomas Flyer when all of a sudden they came to a frozen creek. The American car had gone across the ice, but how long ago? Before the Italians tried to cross the frozen creek with their car, they decided to have one of the crew members walk cautiously onto the ice to see if it was safe. This was done. As the courageous crewman walked on the ice of the frozen creek, there were a few ominous groans. Then all of a sudden there was a great crack. The ice broke and the man went into the ice cold water. Oh well, the car was safe 
and that's what counted. How to get across the snow-capped Rocky Mountains was the next problem. The solution to the problem was found when the crews got permission from the railroads to follow their tracks, which went through tunnels under the mountain passes which were covered with snow. Finally, they got to Utah, and from there they moved across the Great Salt Desert. For the first time, they were making good progress. They now went through Eli, Tonopah, and Goldfield, Nevada, and then they dropped into Death Valley. How could things go from one extreme to the other, from cold to hot, and just like that? The heat was like a vast roasting pan. Death Valley was like a dazzling white plain. The air seemed almost solid, like breathing molten liquid. Each breath seemed to sear the lungs. The sun was like a burning glass. But after a day or two, the cars were out of the burning valley. Now in California, they moved up the King's Highway toward San Francisco. According to the rules, they were now to go to Valdez, Alaska and drive to Nome and then catch a ship to Japan or Siberia. The Thomas Flyer, which was about four weeks ahead of everyone, went to Alaska and there they found it impossible to drive. So they returned to Seattle. The other cars in the meantime had overtaken the Thomas Flyer. However, the American car was still in the running. The cars were now placed on ships and transported across the ocean. Once on the other side of the Pacific, the race continued. One of the crews bought up all the gasoline and kept the others from moving. But in less than a week's time, some other gasoline supplies were located and the others were on their way. Once in Asia, they followed the Trans-Siberian Railroad, as it seemed to be the only true guide in this vast wilderness and tundra. Breakdowns had to be repaired on the spot, timber wolves had to be fought off, and indeed, this was an adventurer's road. The cars continued their race across Russia, into Europe, and finally the journey's end was in sight, as Paris was not far off. The winning car in this test of skill and endurance was the American entry, the Thomas Flyer. The Thomas Flyer arrived in Paris five months, two weeks, and four days after it had left New York City. It was finished. They had done it. And what an adventure it had been. These men, who were their own breed of tough pioneers, had completed a mighty individual achievement. Their courage, endurance, skill, resourcefulness, and intelligence must be commended. But what did it all prove? George Schuster, who was the winning driver, and who was 98 years old and still alive in New York State in 1968, told Time magazine that he felt the race proved to the world the durability of the automobile. Furthermore, he went on to say that he felt the race contributed to the road building programs in the United States. To those who still feel that the race had no practical value, all that can be said to them is, that it was still quite an adventure.
And so, these memories of the great around-the-world automobile race slip back into the pages of the past. Even so, these memories are always there to remind us of those courageous drivers of the golden age of the motor car.